I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. In the beginning, the end. So where to start? When you're in the middle of a story, it isn't a story at all, but only a confusion, a dark roaring, a blindness, a wreckage of shattered glass and splintered wood like a house in a whirlwind or or else a boat crushed by the icebergs or swept over the rapids and all aboard are powerless to stop it. It's only afterwards that it becomes anything like a story at all when you're telling it to yourself or to someone else. My guest is Justin von Boydash. He's been a home hospice care worker and now works as a chaplain in the New York City correction system at Rikers Island. He's also a teacher and ordained repa in the Kagyu tradition of Tibetan Buddhism. His new book is Modern Tantric Buddhism, which explores and simplifies the most essential teachings while also calling out the harm of colonialism and privilege that exists in many Buddhist communities. So first off, I just want to say I love this book. Thank you so much. That, that, that means a lot to me. Part of it brought back memories of spending a winter with Milarepa and his 100,000 songs that totally came alive for me while I was living in an uninsulated cabin in the woods up here in Vermont many years ago. <laughs> Wonderful. So you say that throughout different times and cultures, the challenge has always been the same. Can we be present in this moment to allow the direct experience of the essence of liberation to arise. Is there a unique challenge to liberation in our culture at this time? That's a great question. Um, I think we could say yes. You know, on on one level, I, I think just on a very human level, we could say that in some ways the challenge around remaining present to the experience of direct liberation or direct awakening has consistently been very similar from time period to time period. As humans, our our relationship with our emotions, our relationship with the external world, the relationship in a 
family system was in terms of society doesn't change tremendously. You know, it's it's an uphill battle no matter what. But I, I feel like the combination of the effects of our economic systems in this particular moment, our relationship to our environment, you know, the, the environment in general. But then also, you know, I think we could say that at this time, humanity across the board occupies this very unusual place in which we're very divorced from the environment in which we live just in general. So, you know, for example, I live in New York City. Um, my family on both sides are Hungarian, relatively recent immigrants to the United States. And so even, you know, my own idea and relationship to, you know, the idea of America is different than other people's and, you know, not better or worse. But at times this environment seems like home. And then at other times I can appreciate how this environment is foreign to my grandparents, feels perhaps half foreign to my parents, and, and I'm the first generation you know, in my family you know, trying to not only make sense of it, but to embrace and experience and awaken within you know, the experience of what, what, whatever it means to be American now. And then, of course, there's technology, which has you know, the wonderful ability to draw instantaneous connection between people across the planet or have access to, for example, in, in the case of tantric Buddhism, you could have an iPad full of thousands of pages of very profound texts and sadhanas, meditative ritual texts, and at the same time, it's easy to become addicted to our technology or for our, our relationship to technology to actually even be more like a drug that deadens our experience of life or distracts or fractures our ability to remain present in the moment. And then, of course, you know, there's just the kind of, you know, political structure, you know, of the United States right now where there's just such tremendous division. And I think probably also transition, which is causing so much division, that it's a, it's, it's a, hard, it's a hard time to not react. It's a hard time to not feel overwhelmed. And yet, ironically, the tantric Buddhist tradition is very powerful in these circumstances when we're able to work with our pain and our suffering, our anxiety, our sense of brokenness, and our distraction. Yes, it it almost seems like it's an aid in our spiritual process because all of these challenges are coming at us constantly and constantly reminding us of the work that we can be doing with everything that's that's continually arising as opposed to having occasional things come up and forgetting that that's our continual work. Absolutely. And I think in that regard, I mean, the ethos of the tantric Buddhist imperative really is about being able to engage in activity in a way which is whole. It's not, you know, that you are necessarily Buddhist and political or Buddhist and are involved in anti-oppression work or Buddhist and, you know, working against patriarchy, when we're authentically practicing and in direct relationship with the mind and direct relationship with the way appearance arises, the way we experience things, the way we take responsibility for ourselves and, and our impact on others, we can't help but begin to transform the world around us. So it's not necessarily the case that we're starting from a place of lack 
and we need to build the skills. The interesting thing about the tantric tradition is that by engaging the tradition, we're actually operating from a place of fullness. Whether we recognize it or not is a different thing, but when we can appreciate the fullness and the fullness of the range of our experience and all of the wisdom that's wrapped up in that, then there's a tremendous power as we move through life. Yeah, I've been doing this work for over 40 years, and it's quite a challenge in the beginning, for me at least, and I think it was the case for most other people, there was no sense of connection to the presence of the moment, that even though it's always there, it was so easy to miss it. It's like the nose on our face that we don't even recognize, we don't even see, because we're so distracted by everything else that we're trying to come to terms with early in our lives, and especially when we're first embarking on the quote-unquote spiritual path, because it's such a foreign concept in many ways, at least on the intellectual level. It's almost as if it's an oxymoron to be thinking or engaging in the spiritual process through the intellect. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, on one level, and I mentioned it in the book, there's an element of artifice, you know, initially in engaging in any spiritual practice, where in the beginning we might be looking at it from the perspective of adding things into our life. You know, from the Buddhist perspective, it could be learning how to train in cultivating generosity or patience or wisdom. And in the beginning, it kind of feels like, you know, oh, well, I need to become more generous. I need to become more patient. I need to become more able to remain compassionate and not necessarily jump off on any of the given, you know, reactions I might be having to a situation I may like or dislike. And it takes time to learn how to have what we could call a, a sense of natural confidence in the fact that as we sit, perhaps in meditation or contemplation or doing a visualization exercise, that it's all already present. You know, so we go from this kind of, you could almost say like kind of beginner's view of feeling like we need to add things to our present experience for that spiritual practice and our spiritual lives to deepen. And then we get to this point where we realize that actually, you know, we actually perhaps need to let go of things and to come back into a, a state of just basic being, you know, basic presence with what's happening, you know, either emotionally or spiritually or what's happening in our community, rather than jumping up to immediately change things or, or affect change. What is it like to just let things unfold and appreciate the beauty and the wisdom and the fullness and the richness and the perfection in that? And so it's part of a journey. In the beginning, it's as if you need scaffolding to kind of hold the structure together. But then at some point, when the structure is self-sufficient and can stand on its own, then you need to let the scaffolding go. And sometimes that could actually even be perhaps certain dictates of a religion. You know? and, and you see this sometimes in the stories of various kind of masters of the tantric Buddhist and Hindu traditions, where they gain kind of a, a natural certainty in their experience, which then subsequently leads them to a place of deep-seated wisdom that might not necessarily align 100% with the kind of traditional dictates of the religion. And they're kind of simultaneously operating 
inspired by the root of the religion, but then kind of just authentically acting on their own as well, which can appear different. Well, there's something you talk about in the book of the importance of recognizing each person's own unique path and individuation as an integral part of their spiritual development. Yes, and and this is something that, you know, it's kind of the synthesis of my own spiritual path and practice, and then also that of in a chaplaincy. You know, I, I worked as a hospice chaplain doing home hospice work in the New York City area, covering parts of Brooklyn and Queens, an inpatient facility in Manhattan, and then any Buddhists that came onto our service. And then now for New York City Department of Correction, where I was hired as a first chaplain for, at the time, over 10,000 staff. And now additionally, I manage all of the chaplains that work with the, the detainee population. You know, even in our own faith traditions, if we're spending time with somebody who shares, you know, for example, in my case, a spiritual formation within the Buddhist tradition or the tantric Buddhist tradition, everyone is different. You know, the reason why we came to practice, um, the reason why we turn towards spirituality, the reason why we may lean on it in times of difficulty is different for all of us. And that is really a testament to the beauty of all of the different religious traditions that exist. It's also a testament to the beauty, complex beauty, of what it means to be human and to feel pain and also feel love, to feel anxiety and then also to feel great certainty in things, to have hope and then at other times to feel hopeless. Yeah, life affords us the full spectrum of possible experience. And to me, that the whole tantric practice is all about finding our own way of, I mean, literally our own personal way of navigating all of that. And I've always had an issue with institutionalization of religion and even spirituality, because There's nothing even remotely like one-size-fits-all. And without a teacher who has a direct experience, at least some of the time, to help guide new practitioners, it's so easy to get lost and distracted by that miasmic quality of our experiences, the thoughts and, and emotions and the way we react to things. And, I mean, at this point, from my end of the spectrum of life, um... I just find it fascinating and and actually quite wonderful. I do remember very well how difficult it was for me in the earlier days. And even in the middle days, it was just so incredibly challenging and painful and just full of so much suffering, self-generated suffering. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, I read a good deal about Sunma Zangmo, who was my root teacher. She was a Tibetan Buddhist nun who I had met in Sikkim while on a study abroad program to India. And we ended up developing an incredibly close and intimate spiritual relationship with her as my teacher and as her student. It wasn't, you know, sometimes we'll look at, um, for example, movies or literature or television shows around models of what that relationship should be like. And of course, now in in popular culture, you know, Asian religions have been around 
quite a bit. And so we have kind of, you know, in pop culture narratives, you know, assumptions about what these relationships should be like. What I benefited from was her ability to remain open to me and to be able to be open to the way that I fool myself, you know, and all the ways that I might lie to myself or deceive myself. And out of love, helping to kind of point these things out. And I think that that's really the skill of a good spiritual teacher is, first of all, to to be able to have a relationship which is close, but like a close friendship. So that just as any close friend might be able to say, hey, you know, you say you want to do this, but, you know, I've, I've always noticed you don't like doing that, you know, or have you noticed you've been upset over the past month or you seem really sad? You know, a close friend can point these things out in a way that allows us to bring this into our consciousness and with a direct honesty, a supportive and friendly and loving honesty that allows us to be able to notice and then begin to explore how approaching and addressing whatever dynamics might be arising as fuel for our practice can help create transformational change. And at times, I tend to be pretty contrarian with regard to some of the dynamics around how the Tibetan tradition has arisen within the context of American pop spiritual culture, where big teachers, you know, they go on a big teaching tour and teach in six or seven different cities and then leave the country. And nobody really has, or very few people have the chance to connect personally with this teacher and to be able to have an intimate relationship, much like the one, you know, we find between Milarepa and his teacher Marpa, or Marpa and his teacher Naropa, or, you know, a, a wonderful, you know, lineage transmission that has happened where there's that closeness and that intimacy, which is important. And it's easy sometimes to depersonalize our spirituality in a way that makes us comfortable and thereby kind of preventing us from, you know, occupying these places within ourselves or noticing these places within ourselves that are painful or that are sad or that cause us disturbance to remember them. When at the end of the day, the kind of essence of the practice is, you know, learning how to love ourselves and to accept ourselves. And it's like you said, come back to a greater awareness of just who we are and, and what does it mean to embody that. But we can't do that if we can't see ourselves. And then we can't do that if we can't have our eyes open to, to the ways that we struggle. And that's one of the things that a good teacher or a good spiritual friend, you know, or a good friend or, or a partner can aid in us doing as we progress along the path. Well, considering how many spiritual seekers there are in the world at this point and the number of available teachers how can that be accomplished to the most beneficial effect for so many people? I suppose that's a kind of a question about you know, spiritual economics. I don't know that there are so few teachers. I know that there, there are so few big famous teachers, you know, but there, there are a tremendous number of spiritual teachers of, of many different traditions across the globe. You know, within the, the tantric tradition, tantric Buddhist tradition, 
there are Western teachers, there are Asian teachers, there are European teachers, there are you know, people in South America. The numbers are increasing. And actually, this is also a really interesting place to explore technology. You know, I have students across the country, and I, I know other teachers kind of of my generation who have students around the world. And through, you know, web streaming, things like Zoom, it's possible to maintain these kinds of relationships with the aid of technology. But it's a two-way street. There really has to be this, you know, simultaneous commitment to having that kind of relationship. And, you know, to be frank, you know, there are plenty of big famous teachers who might not necessarily be interested in getting to know their students very well. There's also the issue that not all teachers will work well with, you know, every student. They're, absolutely. Those dynamics can be very tricky. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, my, my three main teachers prior to my present main teacher all died. And in the, in the book, I spend quite a bit of time reflecting on the wisdom and the strength going through these losses and, and trying to feel my way through all of that and grow through all of that. And I remember after one of my teachers, Boko Rinpoche, died, a number of people said, you know, oh, you should go, you know, check out this other teacher. You know, this person is also very well known and very well regarded, same lineage. And I went to go see this person for a personal interview and then to a public teaching, and I just didn't feel it, you know, whereas I had close friends who, you know, felt an instantaneous connection you know, almost immediately, or upon hearing teachings, or, you know, upon a personal interview. And and I think you're 100% right. There is, inherently, has to be a sense of chemistry between the teacher and the student. And I've seen that play out where I've had friends who have, you know, relatively unknown teachers, and then people who have, you know, very, very famous teachers where it's a little hard to have a personal relationship. But there is, you know, some semblance of a, of a you know, teacher-student relationship that's created. And these relationships change over time, too, just as our needs change. So it's not that the teacher-student relationship is a product that can be purchased. On some level, on a very superficial level, it could be. You know, you could go see the Dalai Lama, you know, at Madison Square Garden, although he doesn't really do that that much now, and say, well, he's my teacher, and, and that's it. And, you know, I, I saw him from across, you know, the, the stadium, and, and I knew that was it. And, you know, nothing against the Dalai Lama, you know, that could be questioned in contradistinction to being able to sit down with, a you know, maybe a lesser-known teacher and have a nice lunch and get to know one another and begin to, you know, honestly relate and have that sense of closeness. And, and that's hard, but it, but, it, but it can't be bought. It, and it takes effort and energy to be able to do that. And it's very unique to each person. Um, I reflect on many different experiences where the most profound level of understanding and teachings came not through a particular teacher or a, you know, a particular form or human form. For example, mm -hmm. spending that winter with, literally with a book of Millerepa's 100,000 songs and mm -hmm. having it quite literally coming to life in a way that was so powerfully illuminating for me 
And then there's lots of accounts of people having, and I've also had this experience with psychedelics on, on at least one occasion, where, mm -hmm. where that can have the same catalytic effect. Mm -hmm. And then there's lots of stories of other kind of what you might call magical ways of experiencing awakening. Absolutely. And you could include in that, you know, more visionary states like dreaming. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah, there's, you know, there's a part of the book where I talk about this idea of the Lama as appearance, where the, you know, yes, we need a teacher to help, they say to, to guide, you know, guide us on the path, right? But it's not that they're the ones controlling the ship. They're the ones who are helping us learn how to navigate ourselves, you know, in relationship. And so on one level, yes, there's the human that we're relating to who may be helping us to do that. But just as you say, text has the ability to do that as well. You know, and you, and you see this in, in various Christian traditions where interacting with the Bible is the same as interacting directly with God. You know, and in the Buddhist tradition, interacting with certain texts is the same as interacting with a physical teacher or a visionary teacher, you know, perhaps a, you know, a teacher, for instance, a dream state. There's also the teacher in just the way we apprehend phenomena, you know, or the way that we experience things around us, you know, the falling leaves in the fall or the coming on of cold weather helps us recognize change. And that's a great teaching. You know, sometimes if we are able to go to, you know, a high mountain peak or you know, the seashore, and you look out over the vast horizon you might encounter in those locations, that sense of spaciousness and the experience that that creates is a form of a teacher or a lama. You know, we could be walking down the street or driving a car, and all of a sudden we experience great anger. Somebody cuts us off, you know, or fear. You know, we lose control for a moment, and that's a teacher. So just kind of breaking up our ideas about these things is such a powerful thing to do, because sometimes we get, everything gets very crystallized inadvertently sometimes, and then I'm sure you've had this experience where, where you know, things feel a little stale, you know, or maybe even a little, a little dead. And when we informalize things, it really breathes fresh life into potentially every experience that we have. Yes, absolutely. There, there's so many times when it's sort of as if we have the realization that we've just entered a cul-de-sac in our life, and then we, we sort of have to find our way out or back into the stream or the flow of what's alive. Absolutely. I would love for you to talk more about how that happens. Yes. So my first teacher, Tsumma when I first met her, I was really sure that I was going to become a scholar of Buddhism and, you know, teach at the university level and write and do all this stuff. And she was pretty quick to recognize what a mistake that would be for somebody who also wants to be a practitioner. And one of the reasons why, and she brought this up in, in a couple of really uncomfortable conversations, confronting my desire to want to know everything, or at least to know a lot. And it was uncomfortable because I found that security in 
having a, a deeper intellectual kind of knowledge of the tradition. And what she was urging me to do is to just experience the basic simplicity of the tradition, you know, which can be two different things. And it's very easy, accidentally, to find ourselves, you know, knowing too much so that basic experience is very hard to have. We kind of will explain it away or you know, it lacks life because it's it's just intellectual. Whereas the experience of basic simplicity of the tradition, the experience of mind as it is, or the experience of the way we inhabit phenomenon and relate to phenomena as it happens and without judgment, without modulating anything, or without, you know, trying to take away anything from our experience is so soothing. It it kind of is a simultaneous experience of being soothed and slightly aroused in the sense of being alerted, you know, more aware to the present moment, which can be explained intellectually, but can't be experienced intellectually, right? So my teacher used to say was, you know, if you have to read a book, try and forget it as you read it. (laughs) And, you know, I've always found, and I still do, that that image is really beautiful, where you're just reading and forgetting, reading and forgetting. And the wisdom of that is that, you know, when there's too much form, we project form onto everything, Right, and and so we need to have a decent balance of being able to just rest in experience without formalizing it. You know, rest in experience without saying this is what it is. This is what this experience right now is. Like you don't even have to worry about that. Just be, and just relax. You know, just feel, without having to add footnotes or addendums, or, you know, even get involved in kind of a more historical analysis of, well, this is what my experience is, and I can relate it to the history of the tradition in, you know, X, Y, and Z different kinds of ways. And so that can sound like a very kind of abstract, pure Dharma kind of argument, but it's fascinating when you see it play out in chaplaincy and, and kind of spiritual care or pastoral care for people. Those moments of direct experience are such radical places that allow us the ability to get a break from the intense repetition of our experience. You know, so if we're working in a place that is very traumatic, you know, like a jail facility, getting a break from all of our habitual reactions to everything, getting a break from the way our, our mind just kind of plays and replays and replays things. It's our own kind of like, you know, inner emotional intellectualism, you could say, ends for a moment through direct experience. And there's freedom there. A kind of reset? A res- yeah, a reset or, you know, there, there's so many different ways of looking at it. A reset, it could be a widening of a lens. It could be viewed as, you know, when you cup your hands together and there's water in there. Or, you know, you cup your hands together and you put a, a tennis ball in there. There might not be a tremendous amount of space left over. Right? But what if your hands expanded to three miles wide and you put that tennis ball in there? Then there's space. That tennis ball 
doesn't become the primary point of focus. It just becomes, you know, one of many things in the field of experience. And what we learn how to do with with our practice is to be able to kind of vacillate between tightness and looseness, you know, to, to get a sense of, to develop a skill in not occupying one particular location and then how to widen that experience. Mm-hmm. And even develop the skill of being able to embrace paradox opposites mm-hmm. at the same time, which in a way can, can short-circuit the intellect kind of instantaneously. And I would love for you to talk about the nature of the mind and how it relates to this experience of direct presence in the moment. Because there's so much talk about the mind, what it is, where it arises from, and also the nature of our experience in relation to the mind. And you were just talking about creating space and spaciousness. So I think all of this fits together in some way, and I would love for you to to talk about that. Sure. So in the book, I share in the third section, which is a section on mind, kind of variety of traditional texts that, that go back to, you know, about 10th century, 11th century India, a couple or a little earlier, on direct experience of the nature of mind. And the beautiful thing about the way these texts are written is that they are full of paradox. You know, so sometimes, you know, it'll be said it's like this and not like that. You know, the experience of the nature of mind can be pointed at, but it can't necessarily very easily be transferred. There are some teachers who very profoundly are able to help induce an experience of the vastness of mind. Mind at its, at its most basic kind of level is limitless. There's not necessarily a particular reference point. But over time, we've come to very kind of automatically, habitually kind of locate ourselves as the center of everything. And so these texts and the related meditation practice, especially of Mahamudra, which is this combination of both learning how to rest in simplicity while at the same time develop a sense of awareness and I guess you could say a, a, an expansive curiosity of whatever it is that's arising in this moment allows us to make room for the edges of thought, you know, the space between things as they happen. And interestingly enough, closely connected to this is, is this kind of sense of natural patience, naturally arising patience that develops over time while we engage in these practices of learning how to just let the mind, almost like a candle, burn itself out. You know, where we just find ourselves thinking, thinking, and thinking, and analyzing, and wondering, you know, oh, when is it going to be dinner time? Or, you know, um, what am I going to do today? Or what do I have to do tomorrow? And, you know, eventually, as we sit, we let this kind of, you know, broadcast just play and play and play. Slowly, we begin to notice, as we become familiar with just 
the way that the mind arises. But there's actually, there are moments of space between the way these thoughts arise. Sometimes we can allow ourselves to just focus our awareness on these places of spaciousness. Sometimes that allows everything else to just kind of naturally diminish. The level of activity diminishes over time. And under those circumstances, then the experience of spaciousness expands. So as an undercurrent of everything, your mind, my mind, the mind of all of the people listening to this, and their loved ones, and even their enemies, if they have enemies, all of the, the essence of our mind is exactly the same. It's a spacious, clear, direct, almost like a canvas upon which the entirety of our experience and the entirety of our interconnectedness is painted, you know, the, the way it all appears. And when we're able to, sometimes progressively and then other times a little bit more instantaneously, have these experiences of greater awareness, of greater awakening as to the true nature of all of this, the true nature of our experience, the true nature of our seeming difference, you know, that, that really isn't even really there. Then a tremendous amount of fear begins to dissipate because there is no enemy. There's nothing to be afraid of. You know, there's nothing to be anxious about. There's no other. That's right. There's no self and there's no other. It's almost like, you know, some kind of unified field kind of experience. Mm-hmm. So, in a way, there's there's a portion in the book talking about sacred geography, and this kind of relates to what we were talking about at the very beginning, our relationship to the environment, or our localized environment, so in Vermont or Brooklyn. By resting in the nature of mind, we're able to kind of go on pilgrimage everywhere in the universe. You know, we're able to kind of touch the basic space of every place and every moment that has ever arisen. And there's such beauty in that, such peace. Yeah, it's like the paradox of place and and spaciousness, infinite spaciousness, kind of reveals itself or can reveal itself in that way that we connect with space as being like like sacred and and meaningful and present in itself and yet also recognizing that that same quality of experience exists everywhere and in a strange way of speaking nowhere at the same time mhm absolutely absolutely and so that becomes a really interesting kind of proposition as we enter into dying. You know, because as Western people, you know, there's this kind of fear or anxiety about, you know, what happens after? You know, what happens after I die? And what is that experience going to be like? And I remember, you know, as a hospice chaplain, you know, occasionally I would meet people who, you know, were well into the on-ramp onto active dying. And sometimes you'd find people who had so much fear around annihilation 
I'm going to be annihilated. You know, my experience of everything will go away. You know, this identity will die too. And the amount of anxiety and fear, and, you know, in some cases, complete horror around what's going to happen can be really interestingly addressed by beginning to be open to this kind of idea that the essence of mind remains on some level a continuous thread of continuity from end of life into what in you know the tantra tradition we could call the bardo experience and then into the arisal of you know whatever the next life form experience looks like and when we're able to recognize and you know have a certain element of certainty around the continuity of that thread a certain element of fear and anxiety dissipates you know, and for some people, they can go into the, the dying process or dying, you know, the stages of active dying, not only with confidence, but with a certain element of comfort, you know, a certain element of knowing that, well, you know, this, this is going to continue. Maybe not in the sense of, you know, one continuous consciousness, right? but there's a certain thread of a continuum that's called Madhya Mind in the Tibetan you know, Tantric tradition that goes from one existence to the next. I would like you to talk more about this thread that you're talking about. To me, it strikes me as being a conceptualization to help us understand a concept that, that otherwise can't be spoken directly about. Mm-hmm. And I think it'd be really easy for some people hearing that term thread used and actually, you know, imagining a conceptual thread. Sure. Yeah, it's not necessarily that, like, you know, that Tonya or Justin just continues into, you know, the next life. Let's say you're born in Greece, and then you're, you're Tonio in Greece, you know, and then you die, and then it's, you know, Tonio born in Siberia, and then it's, you know, Tonio born in Nigeria, and it's the same identity. You know, that's not what's being pointed out. I think one interesting way, and, and I don't know how you know this will resonate with people, that this could be looked at is through like near-death experiences. I had one as a young boy, I was probably about seven, where I fell into a pool, my grandparents' pool, and as I you know, kind of begin to sink, um, all of a sudden my experience of everything that was happening was from like 25 or 30 feet above the pool. And I could see my body floating there. I could also see one of my aunts jump into the pool, swim down and get me and bring me back up. And the moment I gasped for air, then the point of reference was back down in my body. And this is something that I had basically forgotten about until I was in an interdisciplinary team meeting in hospice, where I asked myself that I loved working in hospice. It was a very comforting, comfortable, and and meaningful place to be. And at one point, I was you know just wondering during a team meeting, and all of a sudden that experience kind of returned back to me, the memory of it, and it confirmed for me. And this was years after traveling in Asia and studying there and practicing there. It confirmed a lot of the the kind of you know theoretical descriptors of 
this kind of you know continuity of experience that happens around the death state. And I realized at that moment that this was something that actually allowed me to be very well suited for working with people who are transitioning into the death experience or the death state. And it was something that also allowed me two things. I mean, on one level, there was a certain element of curiosity about what was that experience, but then there was another part of me, more or less, I think you could say, bolstered and supported by experiences that I had had in meditative states that allowed me to understand that this Vajra mind that goes from existence to existence isn't an identity, but it's an experience of being. It's an experience of awareness. It's almost as if it's like the reflective capability of mind to recognize things is the thing that transfers between existences, if that makes sense. It makes total sense to me because I've had some of those experiences myself, and what it makes me think of is that the experience of consciousness in our body has a very different qualitative feeling, or it's a very different experience than the experience of consciousness outside of the body. It's as if Mm -hmm. being in the body has a kind of gravitational pull down into a kind of a density that doesn't exist outside of the body. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So this thread, I kind of think more of it in terms of consciousness is there's a wholeness in the experience of consciousness and yet we can have our own experience, whether it's personal or, or however we experience it, has different qualities depending on the gravitational pull of the effects and things in our life, whether it's being in our body, having emotional trauma, being in physical pain, experiencing joy or love, or actually leaving our body for whatever reason. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that a lot of those things that you just described have to do with how we are attached and related to being rooted in not only a a physical body, but of course then an identity as well. You know, there's this story of, I think it was Sukha Siddhi, who was one of the students of the Indian Mahasiddha Virupa. And in, in her story, her liberation story, she is cleaning a earthenware jar and the lid is stuck on it and she ends up dropping it and as it drops it breaks and she has this kind of awakening when she realizes that instantaneously the contents inside the air within this jug that had been sealed and separate from the rest of the air around naturally just joined and was connected to the air outside. And there's something to be said about how this series of, and it really is a series of identities that we inhabit, whether or not it's, it could be gender related, it could be size, it could be race, it could be, in terms of economics, class, 
It could be national origin. All of these different, you know, kind of aspects of our identity help to construct this sense of self. And when that sense of self is either broken or if it's experienced differently, that allows us to experience our fundamental nature in a way that's much more direct. In a way, you could say, much more clearly apprehended or clearly seen than just the limitation of, you know, Justin, you know, there's 604 white living in Brooklyn, that identity, and being more able to understand this much more vast, much less locatable experience of being. Mm-hmm. Maybe it would be good to ground some of this in our worldly experience and bring these issues of identity and class and privilege into this conversation. There's a lot that can be worked with in here. Like, for example, I find it interesting that in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition or in the Buddhist tradition, there's a huge emphasis on compassion and kindness and alleviating of suffering And yet there's also this at least equal emphasis on the essential nature of things, of reality, of of mind and consciousness. Mm -hmm. And one of the elements that you bring into this book that I think is pretty new in terms of our culture and modern times is bringing in the issues of social justice and the effects and the harms of colonization and privilege, the many different facets of it. We're seeing it a lot in terms of race and very much so in in gender as well, the new expanded understanding of gender going beyond simple binary um, Mm -hmm. definitions and and identities. Um, Why has that been so important for you to bring in, and how does it relate to that paradox between the focus on compassion and alleviation of suffering, and also in contrast to the essential nature of everything? Mm-hmm. So, when I wrote that, I was very much motivated by a sense of exhaustion in relationship to the way. The Tibetan Buddhist tradition, at the very least, fails to look at these issues. You know, there will be, of course, as you mentioned, you know, an emphasis on a desire to be more compassionate. And that's wonderful. And yet, when you look at the way Dharma practitioners organize themselves, or the way that Sanghas or Dharma communities fundraise, or the way that power is distributed, both here and in Asia, you know, in these Dharma communities and, and entire lineages, we begin to see that things are not nearly as compassionate as the tradition itself asks us to be. And so there seems to be a disconnect. And I think that the thing that makes this particular time a profoundly rich one is that there seems to be an awakening in our societal consciousness around fluidity of identity that is freeing. You know, because I I am, you know, male, 
a cisgendered male. I struggled my entire life without really necessarily understanding why. I struggled with ideas around masculinity, feeling very uncomfortable most of my life around, you know, the projections of what it means to be male. But I lacked the vocabulary to be able to really articulate my own sense of discomfort with the options available. And I think that right now we we occupy a really beautiful time where there's a sense of, I guess, a sensitivity, you could say, around parsing these things out, but not in a way that necessarily creates distinction and definition. It allows there to be fluidity. It allows there to be a way of addressing the way people feel about their identity without crystallizing it into, you know, a binary situation where it's either this or that. And that, for me, aligns much more simply with the kind of essential nature of the way things are. You know, when we're sitting in a garden and there's a flower in front of us, just in our field of reference, there's an aspect of our mind that's actually going to say, oh, well, that, maybe that's a rose. Oh, I don't know if it's a rose. If it is, what, you know, what, how big is it? What color is it? You know, and you're de- defining, 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 right? And, and that's, you know, the facet of the analytical mind. And while there are certain kinds of knowledge arise out of the analytic mind, so does discrimination. And so does inequality. So do hierarchies. And resting in the essential nature of things is a relatively horizontal kind of experience where it's not about good or bad. It's not about, you know, preferred or not preferred. It's just about the way things are arising, you know, with no judgment. And the beautiful thing about that is that that is life affirming. That is a form of ultimate compassion. When we're not playing with a need to classify, and then when we're not plagued with a need to ascertain which form of appearance is more desirable than another. This is a way in which turning our practice towards not only ourselves and better understanding really in a, in a profoundly personal way, the way we inhabit identity becomes a form of Dharma practice. And then likewise, the way we relate to the way appearance arises through the forms and, and forms of expression of others and our own subsequent reactions to that becomes a form of dharma practice. And when we look at what training and compassion can be, it could be something that's somewhat facile, as in, you know, well, let me learn how to be more kind. But sometimes it's difficult to learn how to be kind to people if we refuse to understand ourselves. You know, so if we refuse to, you know, for example, as myself as a white person, if I can't understand the power that privileges me, then I'm never going to be able to see how that impacts other people. I'm not going to be able to have a sense of awareness of how that dynamic operates in other kinds of ways. You know, and it also means that I'm not going to necessarily be able to have an open and direct relationship to the way various systems in which we organize ourselves appear. 
You know, so some people say, or I've said this before, and I feel this way about my relationship to Dharma. Oh, you know, everything just kind of seemed to fall in my lap. Yes, I went through the experience of engaging in Dharma practice, you know, traversing the path and finding teachers and studying with them. But a lot of it was very easy. But I'm also a white man, you know, with a certain amount of leisure time. And if I can't have my eyes open to that, then I can't have my eyes open to the range of experience and the range of privilege and lack of privilege that exists for all of the many different kinds of peoples that appear and arise in my experience of life. If you're just joining us, my guest is Justin von Boydash. He's the author of Modern Tantric Buddhism. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio. In the book, you write about right speech and inner speech and the effects that not only the things we say has on people around us, and but also our actions and how they affect people and the world around us, that there's an integral interrelationship and conversation that's happening between us and, and the world around us continually. And if we're unconscious of that, if we're not reflecting on the nature of how we have a direct effect on everything around us, then we won't be aware of the way we could be harming others and the world around us. That's right. And that level of awareness of our own impact is vital. I mean, a defense of, well, I didn't know, doesn't really help when we're causing harm, especially when we're trying to enter into the world in a way with greater awareness. And that's where this very interesting dichotomy arises sometimes in Buddhist communities in the West, where you can walk into these places and people will, you know, chant and recite texts on, you know, the nature of compassion and apprehending, you know, a direct view or experience of things as they naturally arise. And yet the same community could forget its impact on the local community around it, or it could be a white dominant community and not actually be manifesting truly the compassion that it's seeking to manifest. And these are you know, important discrepancies that need to be addressed. Or, you know, when you have, you know, with patriarchy in Buddhism, I mean, when you have communities of men reciting, may all sentient beings be liberated, but women don't seem to be somehow able to be included in these communities. Where is the authenticity of the heart essence of the tradition. And you know, so sometimes you'll, you'll find people saying, oh, well, that's just politics, or that's identity politics. And you know, on some level, it is a form of identity politics. And yes, it is political, but our existence is political. You know, as a tall, cisgender white man, when I walk into certain kinds of rooms, it has a particular kind of impact, and that's political. It has impact. We all have impact. We all have impact in the sense of, you know, our appearance and our stories and what we bring into a space, you know, just as physical beings, 
Right? But then, of course, there's this whole other aspect of impact that we have as well, this you know, impact towards awakening. And that tends to be de-emphasized as well, even though in a lot of these communities, that's you know, what everybody is trying to focus on. And this kind of goes to the very radical nature of Buddha nature, that we all have the seeds of awakening within us. And if we do, then how silly is it to propagate these systems that cause harm? You know, it seems like a short-sightedness, you know, when communities only benefit themselves. And also basing our practice on what I can get out of it for me and how I can alleviate my own suffering and free myself while pretty much excluding the rest of the world out of that whole equation, which I think is, is something that I see a lot of evidence of in spiritual mm-hmm. practice. Yeah, and so is that a manifestation of Western culture, or is that a manifestation of capitalism and, and its impact on the way we conceive of the world? Or is that a manifestation of colonialism? Is that a manifestation of a particular kind of you know, relationship to power? I suspect that it's all of these things, and all of these things impact subsequently the way we react and, and relate to the world around us, but also the way we relate to spirituality. And you know, ourselves. It, exactly, yeah, and our conception of ourselves as spiritual beings. It's kind of a maturity thing. Mm-hmm, absolutely. It's a maturity thing, and it's not related to years of exposure to Dharma, it's related to the degree to which we can really practice deeply within ourselves, because those two are not necessarily related. Mm-hmm. The depth of our self-inquiry. Yeah, and, and the amount of time that we've put into you know, practicing Buddhism. Because you find people who have you know, amazing 50 years of practice, 60 years of practice, and you know, if you were to talk about patriarchy in the Buddhist world, they would laugh you right out of the Dharma Center, you know, or whiteness. I think whiteness is a real trigger word for white people, <laughs> mm-hmm. I found. Mm-hmm. And especially in Dharma communities where people are like, well, that's just offensive. And it's not offensive. I mean, the same way we could talk about, you know, all other forms of ignorance that we talk about, you know, very categorically in the Buddhist tradition. Why, for some reason, we can't talk about whiteness is really bizarre. Well, it's offensive when we take it personally and we get fixated in our own personal small position in relation to it and also the fear that we could lose all of that precious privilege that we've always had and and we cannot even conceive of living without it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, yeah, it gets back to the way we relate to things as human beings and the tendency to get caught in our sense of identity, our, our narratives, and our conditioning. Absolutely. So this practice of being authentic and deeply honest with ourselves, it's, it's like a, for me, it's been a lifelong, continual process of self-inquiry. Because it's so easy to fall into this sense that I'm, you know, an adult, I have a certain amount of understanding of the world and myself, and I don't really need to keep questioning everything because things are just the way they are. And I find that the more I inquire into things, 
the more that's revealed continually. And because our lives are actually so small and so short and so myopic, that would go on indefinitely. Mm -hmm. And yet it's so easy to think that whether it's because we have a certain level of education or, or spiritual practice to think that we are beyond that. Yes, and a lot of times that really is predicated on certain conceptual ideas around achieving the goal. Mm -hmm. And I think that a skilled practitioner of Tantric Buddhism doesn't achieve anything, <laughs> in the sense that the goal is never achieved, because the goal is constantly our relationship to what's arising right now. You know, the goal is the directness of that experience in that process of inquiry. And because experience is constantly changing, and because appearance is constantly changing, because the circumstances of our lives is constantly changing, there is no end you achieve. It's kind of like an artistic practice, in a way, in the sense that you don't finish. Even as an artist, you might finish a painting, but as an artist, you never finish your kind of point of orientation as an artist. You're constantly changing. And as a good Dharma practitioner, you know, may it be the case that we are, everything is always changing, and that we never be limited by this idea that, you know, I've arrived at the destination and there's nothing left to be done. Mm -hmm. There's this visual metaphor that I fell in love with a long time ago, and I'm standing still as fast as I can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, being present with our eyes open to everything that's happening, as opposed to being present with our ideas of what that means. And being in relationship with everything around us. Absolutely. A humble, a humbly based relationship. Absolutely. I agree. And you mentioned that one of your teachers gave you the advice to keep it small. Yes. About <laughs> Sorry, your my present teacher. Yeah. And a lot of that is rooted in this, you know, so that's my present teacher, Gelsa Brumche, you know, rooted in, in what Dharma is about. And Dharma is not about acquiring empire. You know, it's not about acquiring fame or real estate or, you know, a huge body of students. It's about practice. And practice never ends. Or even collecting spiritual experience or spiritual knowledge. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's a, a saying that there are 84,000 ways to experience the nature of mind. 84,000 dharmas. And so in the beginning, you might say, oh, well, that's great. Like, you know, I need a hundred of them just to be sure. <laughs> and then it turns out really that just one is needed, you know, maybe two. And what's needed, though, is above everything else is an understanding of oneself a sense of curiosity, sense of diligence, sense of openness or reflectiveness. But again, as people living in a capitalist or post-capitalist world, we tend to feel that we need as much as we can. And as a result, we waste a lot of time, we waste a lot of money, we, you know, 
run the risk of hopping onto a treadmill of spiritual materialism that they might not even make it off of, depending on how long we're on that treadmill. And of course, the length of time that that is, is part of our path as well. It's an interesting thing. I mean, at the end of the day, it's really the tightness of our conceptual projections onto everything that dictates how excruciating our path is. And this kind of goes back to that point of allowing things to be loose, you know, allowing our identities to be a little loose, you know, not too tight. And to allow the way that we experience things to just be loose and not, it has to be this way. It's ultimately all very subjective. And speaking of subjective experience, in your hospice work and working as a chaplain in the corrections system, you've had the opportunity to be present with a lot of suffering, a lot of ignorance, a lot of dying and death. How does the experience of death and dying and all of these really intense and raw experiences, how do you work with them as as a practice and as teachings? Mm -hmm. So I have found that the practice of letting go into these experiences was kind of the first way I interacted with them. And what that means is sometimes we tend to feel like, you know, we need to make sure that we have all the resources to go through difficult experiences. You know, much like, you know, harvest time, maybe we feel like we need to gather all of these resources so that we can have them when we need them. The way I had experienced and, and still continually do, like the levels of suffering and violence and fear and anxiety and death and, and all these things that arise, I try and let those be like wind that I glide on or like a wave that washes over me. And not in the sense that, you know, if I stop gliding, I'll fall and collapse, or that the wave will suffocate me. But the more resistance that I have, the more of a difficult experience I end up having in all of this. So there's something about just letting it all happen in a way that's accepting. No matter how viscerally intense my relationship to that experience might even be encountered in my body in the way that sometimes you can feel pain in your bones empathically in relationship to what another person might be going through to just remain present with that, turn that into the past. And there's a song by the Indian yogi Padampasange that's in the book where he relates to all of these unpleasant things like death and suffering and sickness as a treasury of bliss. And that's how I approach it, that these difficult experiences are no other than experience. And so I can watch and experience and feel terror, anxiety, violence, loss, and death, and remain present with them and see what arises in the next moment. You know, remain present without judging not trying to change or modulate how that's happening. And when we do that enough, you know, with these kind of really intense circumstances, you end up learning how to navigate them in a way that allows you to be a very skillful and comforting presence for other people. 
And so as a chaplain, that's, you know, the primary thing that, you know, I rely on is trying to make a home in the places that people run away from. Because somebody has to live there. Somebody has to be able to have familiarity with these things so that when other people experience them, we're able to, you know, shine in the wisdom that exists in these places so that people can recognize them and, you know, then transition into the next phase of whatever their experience is. And in, in the tantric tradition especially, there's a lot of imagery around charnel grounds. And in some kind of tantric systems, one might do visualization practices that include you know, a particular tantric deity arising from a charnel ground. And this might sound morbid, but you know, the more extreme the experience, the more I feel at home. You know that way. It's not that I seek it out. And believe me, when I'm when I'm not at work, I'm at home with my family. You know, my wife, my kids, and I, I love stability there. But when it comes to the work I do, I really try and allow myself to occupy. You know, what typically are unwanted places to be able to be there for people who experience that. And of course, on the most basic level, impermanence and death. I have the privilege of being reminded on a daily basis of impermanence and death. And that is a privilege because it can sometimes be something that people kind of, you know, recite or recall in a rote manner. You know, maybe they've not experienced anyone they love dying or intense illness or violence or things like that. When you don't have access to that kind of experience, then these kinds of things feel very abstract, and it's easy to take for granted. It's easy to assume that, you know, tomorrow will come, and the day after that will come, and I put this stuff off until next month, and then I'll start practicing then. But I've had the benefit of constantly being reminded that these things are not guaranteed. And ultimately, I, I find that a very powerful teaching. In fact, death is guaranteed. Yes. <laughs> and change. Absolutely. Yeah. For you and I. Yes. <laughs> well, I've so thoroughly enjoyed this conversation with you. This has been really fabulous. Yeah, well, thank you, Tony. I've really enjoyed it as well. I'm so grateful for your time and this conversation. Thank you very much. It really means a lot. And, and you know, thank you for reading the book, and thank you for having me on the show. Be well and enjoy this uh, crazy holiday season. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You too. Take good care, and uh, thanks to all the listeners. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was Justin von Bordosch. He's a chaplain in the New York City Correction System at Rikers Island. He's also an ordained teacher in the Kagyu tradition of Tibetan Buddhism. And his new book that we've been talking about is Modern Tantric Buddhism.
of anything, not of
That's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, have a wonderful week. If you missed any of the show, or would like to hear it again, or would like to share it with somebody, you can find this show and all Magical Mystery Tour shows at soundcloud.com. Magical Mystery Tour.